Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And we resume in Bereshit Perukhet, Pasuk Zion. And we learned the first part last week, but just to remember, so the waters are receding and the heads of the mountains have appeared. And then 40 days after that, that was Pasuk Vav. In Pasuk Zion, they shalach et ha'orev. Noach sent a raven. It went going and return. Something like that. Ad yovashat hamayim. Until the waters dried, me'al ha'aretz, from the earth. And Rashi brings two explanations. And we looked at the first last week, so let's very quickly review. On the words, Yotzot v'shuv, Holech umakiv sovivot ha It went and encircled around the teva. So that is how Rashi understands, in the first instance, Yotzot v'shuv, which means go and return, something like that. It doesn't mean, according to Rashi, that the uh, Orev actually came back into the teva. So what does it mean, go and return? It means it went round and round. And uh, I don't think it's totally irrelevant that when you go in a circle, you're actually always turning towards the center. So as it's going around, it's always turning back to the Teva. And it didn't go on its mission. And then we have this rather strange concept, which we talked about a little bit last week, that the raven suspected Noach al-bat zogo, uh, that Noach would have bad intentions towards Mrs. Raven. As we learn in the Gemara. So that's why the raven didn't want to go away, because it suspected Noach. Okay, then comes Rashi's second comment. Ad yoveshet hamayim, until the waters dried up. And Rashi says, pshuto kamashma'o. So he says, the pashat explanation, and when he says that, it means you know he's going to bring a midrashic explanation following it. But the pashat explanation is as it sounds, until the water dried up. Aval midrash agada. But there is a midrash that says, "Muhan hayaha orev lishlichut acheret." The orev was ready or prepared for another mission. Same word, shlichut. But atzirat keshamim bimei Eliyahu, in the time of the stopping of the rain, in the days of Eliyahu, shneemar, as it says there in Malachim Aleph, v'haorvim mevi'in lo lechem ubasar. The ravens brought to him bread and meat. So the story is that Eliyahu said there's going to be a drought, a famine, uh, and there was, and it got tougher and tougher for Ahav, the king, and other bad people around him. And meanwhile, Eliyahu went off to a cave, and he lived there in the cave, and his needs were sustained by the ravens. And says Rashi, quoting the Midrash, this is what is meant by this pasuk. So there's a few things to say. Um, there is a discussion whether Rashi means to reverse what he said about Yotzev Um I'd like to suggest that it works nicely if he does. In other words, the difference between these two explanations um, is really predicated on how you translate Yotzev So we saw, according to Rashi's first explanation, it, meant, it didn't mean he came back to the Teva, but it circled the Teva, just waiting. According to Rashi's second explanation, Yotzev Shuv means going and coming back. But the raven went and came back, and then waited until 
hundreds, thousands of years later till the time of Eliyahu. So that's the first thing to say, that you can read these two explanations as a, the two interpretations of Yotz Abashur. Does it mean went and encircled, which is not really the pshat of the words, or does it mean went and came back and waited till his other mission? The next thing to say is perhaps the, the Midrashic explanation is suggested by the problem of the words Yoveshet Hamayim. The water dried up. Why is that a problem? What would you expect to dry up? Any ideas? Okay, well, it suggested that what you really should read there is the land dried up. The water doesn't dry up. I mean, some water stays in the form of seas and lakes, and some water evaporates. I suppose that's the same as drying up. Um, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm not sure this is the strongest point, but it's what some of the Mephoshim say, that we really would expect Yaveshet Ha'aretz until the land had dried up. But to say the water had dried up doesn't really fit the story of Noah. But what does it fit? When could we say that water dries up? In the time of the drought, in the time of Eliyahu. That's the time that you find water drying up because there was no water, there was no rain. So Yaveshet Ha'aretz could point, sorry, Yaveshet Ha'mayim points better, albeit somewhat uh, anachronistically, to the story of um, Eliyahu hundreds, thousands of years later, um, that's when you find Yavashat HaMayim. Next point to say is, it's also suggested that the, say, the raven doesn't come out of this story very well. Okay? In the first Bushad of Rashi, the raven has got this absurd accusation against Nach, which we mentioned last week, probably means that the raven himself was breaking the rule against relations with the opposite, with, with one's partner, in the Teva, um, which all the animals were enjoined not to do. And because the fact that the raven suspected that Noah was going to do that with the, the Mrs. Raven, that implies that the raven himself wasn't keeping the rules. So the raven is not, doesn't come out well out of this. And a raven is a byword for cruelty. Um, there's uh, various comments, I think, in Michelin, certainly in the Midrash. But a raven, the, the characteristic of a raven is achsari, is, is fierce, is cruel. And that fits well with the story of Eliyahu. Because if you think about it carefully, although the raven was serving Eliyahu, and that's a good thing, and Eliyahu's a Navi, and he himself is serving Hashem, but by bringing food, and, uh, food to Eliyahu, the raven is, perpetu- is perpetuating rather the drought, because by giving um, support to Eliyahu, the raven is part of the support network that enables the drought to carry on. And that's not, re- in, in a certain sense, that's not a good thing to do. I know it's getting a little bit complicated here because obviously serving the, the Novi is a good thing, but nevertheless, it fits the raven's characteristic of perpetuating the bad thing. And that's the same raven here who doesn't do the job that Noah sends him to. I just want to conclude with one further comment I saw in the Ber Yitzchak, um, who said that this, this whole story of the, the raven is not actually implied explicitly in the Pasuk. It's at best implicitly. But this is an example of the, uh, the idea that the Gemara says that everything that ever happens in the future is implied in the Torah. Um, famously, the, Torah, the, the Gemara asks, Esther min ha-Torah minayin, Haman min ha-Torah minayin, Mordechai min ha-Torah minayin. Where do we see allusions to Esther and to Haman and to Mordechai in the Torah? And the Gemara answers that. And it's not for now, we'll talk about that, maybe Purim sort of stuff. But the point is the very fact that the Gemara asks that question and answers that question it, uh, shows that the Gemara understands that everything that happens in Jewish history can be found in some remez, some allusion in the Torah. 
And similarly, the story of Eliyahu in the time of the drought, living in a cave, being supplied by miraculous means, that also is alluded to somewhere in the Torah, and it's here. And Rashi is telling us what that illusion is. Again, I find that that's not our normal style of explaining Rashi, that, that Rashi must be answering a problem in the Pasuk, but that's another suggestion. I think the fact that we have to even suggest that shows that it, it, this is a very hard Rashi. It's really very hard to work out why Rashi is forced to jump to an incident, as I say, thousands of years later, and suggest that the, the raven in the Teva was waiting for the opportunity to serve Eliyahu. It, it's very hard. Rashi, by the way, clearly says it's not shut, it's a midrash, but why Rashi has to bring that, I've given you various suggestions, none of which I find totally convincing, because I think it's, it's quite a hard Rashi. Okay, let's move on to the continuing story. Pasuk Chet, Vaishalach et Hayona Me'ito, he, Noah, sent a dove from him, Lirot hakalu hamayim to see if the waters had lessened me'al penei ha'adama from the face of the ground. Says Rashi, Vayeshalach et hayona l'sof shiva yomim after seven days. Now, oh, let's let's read a little bit further, and then we'll talk about why Rashi has to say that. Sharekativ because it says in pasuk yud. So this this dove goes. This dove comes back. And in Pasuk Yud, it says, Vayachel od shivat yamim. And Rashi's going to tell us in Pasuk Yud, but Vayachel means he waited. And so he waited another seven days. That's the od, another seven days. So if you go back to Rashi in Chet, we'll start again. Lesov shivat yamim. After seven days, in other words, between the raven and the dove, there were seven days. Shaharei because it writes in Pasuk Yud, Vayachel od shivat yamim acherim. He waited seven more days. I'm sorry, I missed out the Acherim before. That's actually the key word. Michlal zeh atolomat. From this you learn, sha'af berishona hochil shivat yamim. That also the first time he waited seven days. It's really quite clear. If on the second instance, the Torah says, he waited another seven days, then obviously he'd waited seven days previously. But the Torah doesn't need to say that because we can work it out from Pasuk Yud. So Rashi is telling us he waited seven days. Why is he telling us that? I would say three things spring to mind. Number one, he's explaining the Pasuk. He's telling you what happened, because the Pasuk misses a bit out. Number two, he's explaining Pasuk Yud, and he's doing it here now, because really it's relevant to explain what's happening in Pasuk Chet, which explains the words in Pasuk Yud, which are, Vayachel od shivat yomim acherim. What's this seven more days in Pasuk Yud? So he's explained now that there were seven days in Pasuk Chet. And the third thing is, you might remember from last week, when one of Rashi's, well, actually a main part of Rashi's proof, and I won't revisit the whole story of how the countings of the months which chronicle the period of the flood are based on different counting systems. Those who were here last week will remember, uh, hopefully, because we worked quite hard at it, so I hope you remember. Um, and one of the points was the uh, coming the rooftops, sorry, the mountaintops had to appear in the 10th month, which is Av, and not in a, a later month, because there needed to be time from that period, after then 40 days, then sending the raven, then sending the then sending another dove, then sending another dove, um, and then the flood being fully over. And we know when the flood was fully over, and we're going to get to that tonight. And you have to say that the mountaintops appeared in Av, otherwise you don't have enough time for all the other bits of the story to finish before the flood was finally over. And one of those was the waiting between the raven and the dove. 
So that's why Rashi has to say here, just like I said previously, he waited seven days between the raven and the dove. Okay, you're welcome to ask questions at any time. I don't need to be talking constantly, but we'll carry on. So the next thing Rashi says is on the word Vaishalach. And he says, loshen shlichut, loshen, loshen, I think I haven't got vowels here, Shaloach. Shaloach? Those who have got vowels can correct me. But the point is, it's not an expression of shlichut, it's an expression of Shaloach. What's the difference? Okay, what's, how do we translate shlichut? Not quite. Shlichut is to be sent on a mission, right? Emissaries. It means being sent on a mission, whereas shalach just means be sent. So Rashi is telling us, first of all, he's telling us the grammar, but by shalach means he sent, not he tasked with a mission. That's the first thing. He's telling us what the word means. Now he's going to explain all the relevance of that. And let me just, before we read on, let me just read again the Pasuk, because maybe you'll see the ambiguity. He sent the, ray, sorry, he sent the dove to see if the waters had lessened. Anyone spot an ambiguity there? Okay, the question is, who's going to do the seeing if the waters had lessened? Is it he sent the dove, and why did Noah send the dove? Because Noah wanted to see if the waters had lessened. Or is it he sent the dove so that the dove should see if the waters had gone down? You could read it either way. He sent the dove to see. But who's doing the seeing? So Rashi tells you, says Rashi, He sent it to go on its way. And with that, he, Noah, will see im kalu hamayim, if the waters have gone down. And how will he see? She'im timtsama Noah lo tashuv elav. If the dove can find a resting place, it will not return to him. So Rashi wants to make clear that this isn't a super clever dove that has worked out the whole meteorological observations and is interested in the heights of the water and is going to somehow report back. That's not what's happening. The dove goes on its normal way. That's why Rashi says, The dove just goes and does dove stuff, does what doves do. And Noah will work out from that if it comes back or not. So therefore, the, the verse should be read as, He sent the dove, not that he gave the dove a particular mission, but through the sending of the dove, Noah was going to work out if the waters had gone down. And that's what Rashi wants to stress. Yes? I guess like, practically or logistically speaking, um, with the um, Teva, like, or Noah like, sends, him in, um, sends the dove out of the window, like then that's when he looks to see if the water's... Uh, no, he doesn't see. look to see. Why doesn't he look to see? It's interesting. He doesn't, apparently he doesn't look to see. Um, um, well, maybe, maybe he wants to know a bit more than just the height of the water. Uh, and we'll talk about the next two visits the dove makes. Noah's going to work out a bit more than just the height of the water. Or it could be that he didn't see, that there was a window which pointed upwards and he sent the dove out there. Maybe that's becoming, I mean, this isn't in Rashi, but maybe, and there are ideas that Noah was careful not to see the destruction of the world. 
he should not like see and sort of get any benefit from other people drowning. So there was no window looking out. That might explain what's going on here. Or, as we'll see, it was more of a, uh, a subtle um, way of finding out, not just the height of the water, but what was going on on the surface of the water, or rather the surface of the land. Okay, I've got another question, by the way, um, which really I thought of last week. Um, uh, maybe somebody answers it. Rashi doesn't, but I'll just share with you a question. Is, did Noah intend that the raven and Mrs. Raven would forever after be separated? The, the raven would fly away and Mrs. Raven would stay in the Teva. And similarly, the same question could be asked of the owner. And I don't know the answer to that. Maybe, he, maybe the idea was the owner would fly away, but then they'd be reunited with their mate after they came out of the, of the Teva. Any thoughts? Because presumably they had to be reunited in order to propagate the species, because that's the whole idea of having two of them. So okay. there, were there only two? Ah, yo, the Dav, Dav is kosher, so there were yeah, extra yeah, ones, but the extra ones were there for a particular reason, as we will see. The raven is not kosher, mm. so I don't know. You know. The only thing I can think of is the plan was they would reunite later. Okay, that was Pasuk Chet. Pasuk Tet. Lo ragla. The dove did not find a resting place for the sole of her foot. The tashav elav el hateva, and she returned to him to the teva, kimayim al chal haaretz, because there was water on the face of all the earth. Vayishlach yado, and he stretched out his hand, vayikacheha, and he took her, vayave ota elav el hateva, and he brought her to him into the teva. It's interesting. Rashi's got nothing to say. And I'm curious why there's so much apparently extraneous detail in this verse. Why we have to know that he stretched out his hand and he brought it in, I don't know. But I would ask a question. Is it true to say, ki maim al kola aretz? There was water on the face of all the earth. Why not? The table was on how, whatever, how Hare aratz. Yeah, but it still could be submerged in water. But there's something better than that. Because if you look at... saw the tops of the... Ah, very good. Pasuk hey. Niru Roshe Haharim. The heads of the mountains appeared. So what does it mean there was water on the face of all the earth? So I think uh, the reason I'm asking that is to set us up for the next verse. Because the next verse says, and then the verse after that, V'yachel od shivat yamim, and we already know what that means. He waited another seven days, or yamim achirim. He waited another seven days. V'yosef shalach et hayona min hateva. And he added, or he sent again, the Yonah, the dove, from the Teva. Says Rashi, V'yachel, Lashon Hamtana, an expression of waiting. That's what the word means. And he brings a pasuk from Eov, V'chein, Li Shamu V'yechelu. They listened to me and they waited. Eov is talking about his former glory before all the terrible things happened to him. And he said, wise people came and asked him questions. They listened to me and they waited. And says Rashi, There are many like this in scripture. And I've said this before. I'm very nervous about saying this is a simple Rashi. Because I think the whole point of this shear is to show that every Rashi is complicated. But I could argue this is a simple Rashi that he's telling you what the word means. And there are some times when Rashi feels you're not going to be familiar with the word, especially if a word has numerous different meanings in different contexts, like this one. So he's telling you what it means in this context. It means waiting. 
Yes. That was my question. As in, why Duffy does he explain some words and not others? Um, it's only with ambiguity. I, I think it's words you, you might not know because they're particularly obscure, but that, that's really just a guess. But certainly words that have more than one meaning in different places. Ve'achel, we've had, made it before in the Chumash, it means to profane, it means to make something chul. Uh, we've seen it in that context. So here it means something completely different. I don't think they're even the word connected. It's just two words that happen to look the same with totally different meanings. And that's what he said when he says, Loshan Hamtana, it's an expression of waiting. That's what it means. So he waited another seven days, and then he sent the Yonah. So this is Yonah mission number two. No, I shouldn't say mission. I've just said, oh. What? Was the same Yonah? Um, yeah, it's referred to as Hayona. I think so. Yeah, the dove. And this is another seven days. So how many days now? Um, it was seven days between... I, I, I think I said wrong, by the way, last week. Um, I said there were seven days between the 40 days yeah. and then the raven. I think that was wrong, so I'm happy to correct it. Okay. I think the raven was straight after the 40 days. Then it's seven days from the first... From the raven to the first dove. And then another seven days. And seven days from the first dove to the second dove. Okay. And there's going to be a third dove. Okay? <laughs> but it's all the same dove. It's just the dove, the dove journey. So, in verse Yud Aleph, Vatavo elav hayona la'et erev. And the Yonah came to him in the evening. Vehine alei zayit. There was a olive leaf, taraf, which I will untranslate, I'll leave untranslated, befiha, in her mouth. Veyeda noach, and noach knew, ki kalu hamayim me'al ha'aretz. That the waters had lessened, lightened from on the earth. So before we get into Rashi, what did Rashi, what did Noah know that he didn't know before? There was like living organisms. Living organisms, vegetation. Yeah. There were plants growing. And I would say, by the way, this isn't really Rashi, but it seems to me that's what you have to understand, Pasuk Tet, because he wanted uh, the. the um, the dove came back the first time, kimayim al kala aretz, because there was water on the face of all the earth, which I said in Pasuk Chet, um, sorry, sorry, hey, hey, we've been told that the heads of the mountains had appeared. So yes, it seems to me that you put those two ideas together. Yes, there were bits of dry area, but they weren't sustainable for life. And that was what it means in, in Tet, when it says Kimal Penekala Aretz, there was water on the face of all the earth. Even there were some bits where there were water had receded, it still wasn't sustainable for life. Now he brings the, the dove comes back, unlike the third visit of the dove when he doesn't come back. So this time the dove does come back, but this is the intermediate phase. The first time the dove came back with, with nothing. The third time the dove doesn't come back. But the middle time, the dove comes back with the alezayat, with the olive uh, leaf. Yes? I was just going to ask, if everything was supposed to be destroyed, how is there vegetation for the olive, like for the dove to grow an olive branch? When you say, the question is, everything was supposed to be destroyed, so how is there vegetation? Well, if the premise is that like, only what was on the table and Moshe and his family was supposed to survive, um, I think the answer is an interesting question, but it must, even though it hasn't been discussed, and I've never actually thought of the question before, it must be that the vegetation survived, at least in potential. Right. That the water, everything was submerged, but such that it could grow again after the waters receded. Otherwise, when you come out the table, they're, they're going to eat each other and there's nothing else to eat. And that wouldn't be very good. 
Uh, so it's always been a plan for the water to go down. Oh, yeah, so it's always been a plan for the water to go yeah. down. This, this is World 2.0. Okay. Okay, and they, when we get to Peirat Tet and we talk about the Sheva Mitzvah Ben Enoch, I'll come back to that theme. This is very clearly World 2.0, which, by the way, doesn't work either, so we have to have World 3.0, which we'll get to in Pashas Lechlecha, um, this week, etc. Um, that is World 3.0. You can think about that this week. Um, but so it's definitely the plan, but it's going to carry on. That's the whole point of the Teva. Otherwise, Hashem wouldn't have saved Noah and all the animals. It's definitely going to carry on, and they need vegetation to carry on. So it must be, I'm just saying, there's no other way of understanding, that the plan was all the living creatures, all the um, animals would die, uh, all the people and the animals would die, zoological creatures, that's it, would die, but the botanical creatures would stay uh, at least potentially alive, so that when the water went down, they could start growing again. And that's what happened. Like, because the vegetation is definitely from the area that has been flooded, because we discussed the idea that the, well, flood, the flood was restricted to... Yeah, okay, uh, just to, to, I don't want people to think I'm too much on Epicurus, um, <laughs> that uh, the way we're reading the Torah is it was the whole world. Okay. Um, I'm suggesting that it's possible to fit in with the narrative of the Torah, the idea that it was the whole known world, but not the rest of the world. But either way... It's clear that this olive leaf comes from the area that had been submerged. Yes? Is it natural for a dove to retrieve an olive branch? Because Chumash made such an effort to say that the raven was going on its natural path, like it was doing what it would anyway do, yet like the dove's bringing back an olive branch. It seems a bit unnatural. I don't know. I have no idea of what, what doves normally eat. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, when we look at the Rashi, and particularly the second shot in Rashi, uh, it's quite clear that it's not natural. So you might be onto something. Okay? But I'm afraid I don't know enough about what doves normally eat. Yes? It's sort of on the topic of natural versus not. This idea that it's the continuous seven-day period. Um, like, we've had the creation of the world. And that In was seven days. Seven days. But apart from that, and humans weren't really... I mean, they were around, but only just. They wouldn't have known it was seven days necessarily. That there's no like natural concept of seven days not like the month or you know having the 40 days of rain so is there like is there something in that for Nah or is there something perhaps natural about um i've no idea that's a fascinating question why seven days why not six why not eight um we know that seven is a a a natural i use that word deliberate unit it's the unit that represents nature um so i'm thinking maharalian um, who says that when there are sevens and when there are eights, of which there are many in Jewish ritual, seven represents nature and eight is one above nature. Um, uh, sorry, I'm waffling a bit. Um, it seems clear, I'm really only repeating your question, that there's, Noah chooses seven because he's got a reason for choosing seven, and that probably fits into the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world where seven is some fundamental number um, in many ways, but certainly in a period of time. Um, that's why there are so many things which in time change after seven days, halachically. I'm thinking of all sorts of Tumantara, um, and obviously Shabbat. Um, so presumably we see from this that Noah understood that seven was some fundamental unit of time. Uh, I, not, I, I, I can't say any more than that. Interesting to speculate on. Okay, now let's look at Rashi. Rashi says on the words taraf b'fiha, and I haven't ex- translated taraf yet, Omer Ani, I say, Shazachar Haya, that it was a male dove. Lachain Kara'o Pa'amim Lashan Zachar, U Pa'amim Lashan Nekeva. And that's why the Torah sometimes calls it 
using the male voice, and sometimes the feminine. Now, what does he mean? Uh, he's actually, if you look at the words that he's commenting on, the words are taraf bafiha. Now, bafiha obviously is feminine, in her mouth. But taraf, I'll tell you now, he is translating as a verb. Uh, past tense, third person singular, masculine. And it means tore. That the, he tore a leaf. And the leaf was in its mouth. He tore a leaf in its mouth. Now, it's a slight problem in that the vowels of taraf are kamats and kamats. And really, if it's a, if it's a kal verb, first person, singular, masculine, past, it should be kamats followed by a patach. Um, it should be taraf. But um, this is okay because there are plenty of examples in uh, the Tanakh where you have a verb in the past tense with a kamatz and a kamatz. So that's the first thing. Um, but if it is a verb, as Rashi is reading it, it's a verb in the masculine. And therefore, taraf bafiha is a contradiction. Is it masculine or is it feminine? So Rashi says that it's sometimes called masculine and sometimes called feminine because in this case it was masculine. But let's go a little bit further to make it make a bit more sense. Because every type of dav that you find in scripture is in the feminine. And he brings examples. Now, in my book, the next one is in brackets. And it's from Shira Shirim. And it says, Dav's on the streams of water, they wash. Uh, I don't know if you've got it or got it in brackets. Anyone? Yes, yes. Okay, uh, it's probably in brackets because it's inaccurate. Because if you look at that posik in Shira Shira, and Perak Hey posik, you'd bet, you'll see that the subject, it's, a, it's an extract, and it hasn't extracted the whole relevant part. And the subject is not Yona. The subject is a Nayim, Ker Yonim Alafike Mayim Rachatzot. The eyes, like doves on the uh, streams of water, they wash. So actually the subject is a naim, not yonim. So it doesn't actually prove anything. But the next one does. Kiyone hagaot kulam homot. Doves in the valleys, they all um, 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 beat. And homot is feminine. Ukamo kiyona pota, sorry. And hoshea, perik zayim, pasigyot alaf. Like a dove that is silly, or foolish, or stupid, and there, fota is an adjective in the feminine. So Rashi says that basically the default yona is a feminine word. Here we see one, and by the way, only one instance, incidence of it having a masculine grammar. That's why, therefore, this particular dove was male. So every other place, it's like the default, the way we always refer to the species of a dove as feminine. And here it's, we use a male voice because this one was male. That's what Rashi says. Now, you can ask why this particular spot would be the moment to make the dove take a male grammar, and I don't know. But uh, Rashi says, that's, that R- R- Rashi's focusing on taraf bafiha, which is where you have the contrast there in two conge- adjacent words. And Rashi says, it's masculine in this case to show that this particular dove was masculine. Every other case, it's feminine. Every other incident where we've just been reading about, if you look carefully, it's always feminine because that's what doves are grammatically by default. That's Rashi's first explanation. But then he says, on the word taraf, sorry, sorry, first thing on the word taraf, he translates it for you as chataf. What's chataf? Snatched or tore, snatched off the tree. The, he, he, 
he, Mr. Yonah, snatched the um, leaf off the tree. By the way, if the, this Yonah is male, then that makes, matches him up with the Orev, which was certainly male. And there's a nice contrast in that the Orev was not good and wasn't happy to leave the Teva because he suspected Noah. And this Yonah, equally male, also left its mate, its female mate behind on the Teva, but doesn't mind. This is a good Yonah. It doesn't have the same suspicious mind that the bad Orev had. And that only works, by the way, if this Yonah is male. I don't think that's really what's driving Rashi, but it's a sort of byproduct of what Rashi said. So carrying on with Rashi, Taraf is Tachataf, he tore. He's not just translating the word, he's also giving you the grammar. But the word Taraf is exactly equivalent to the word Chataf, he tore. U Midrash Agada. But there's also a Midrash which says Loshon Mazon. What does it mean, Loshon Mazon? It means the word Taraf, I'm now giving you an alternative translation. If I'd set this up for you better, I would have not quite explained that and I'd have asked you a question. And I'd have said, what is the key difference between the first Rashi and the second Rashi? And you'd have answered, the key difference is, how do you translate the word Taraf? Um, does it mean he tore? Or does it mean something completely different? Loshon Mazon. It means food. In which case, it's not a verb, it's a noun. By the way, other Mephoshim say it's an adjective. It describes the leaf. But Rashi doesn't say that. The first version of Rashi is a verb. Now it's a noun. So, Ale Zayat Taraf, behold, there was an um, olive leaf, Taraf, food in its mouth. And once you say that taraf is not a verb, what problem have you obviated altogether? The gender gender thing. It's no longer a verb in the masculine. It's now a noun. And there's no problem. There's no contradiction between taraf perfiha because taraf isn't anything masculine. It's just a verb. It's it's, it's a noun. And the same would apply, by the way, if you say it was an adjective describing the alezayat, which others do. Okay, so the second Rashi says, Midrash Loshon Mazon. It's an expression of food. Nothing to do with tearing and not a verb. V'darshu. Now, having this, this Loshon Mazon is just the beginning of the drasha. And the drasha continues. Befiha. They, they expounded, and he's quoting uh, slightly changed, but he's quoting basically from the Gemara and Ruvin. Befiha Loshon Ma'amar. In her mouth, doesn't mean that there was something physically hanging in her mouth, but it was what she was talking about. In her mouth means she was talking about it. Now, I don't know how she... It's a real Alizayat. I don't know exactly how they think she carried it if it wasn't in her mouth, but the point of Bafiha is this is what she was saying. Loshan Ma'amar. And what was she saying? Amra. She said... She, because it's feminine, it's, it's unquestionably feminine if taraf is not a verb. Amra, she said, Yihiyu mezonatai merurin kazayet b'yado shel HaKadosh Baruch Let my food be as bitter as a olive leaf, I'm adding the word leaf, in the hands of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, v'lo metukin k'davash b'day basar v'adam, and not as sweet as honey if it comes from people. So this is an expression of piety. 
But the bird, and this is a midrash, by the way, that means it doesn't be, not to be taken literally. I don't think Rashi is saying this is what happened, but he's bringing the midrash to explain the word taraf. And according to the midrash, she said, it was a talking duck, she said, look, I've got this olive leaf, which apparently is very, very bitter. Now, olives, I'm not a great fan of olives. They're not sweet, they're bitter. And olive leaves apparently are even worse. So I, you asked, do, do doves normally eat olive leaves? This midrash implies strongly, but they don't. It's not a natural thing to eat. And it, it's worse than that. It's the most bitter thing that this dove could have found. But what she is saying is that I'd rather have an olive leaf provided by Hashem, in other words, just plucked from the tree, rather than something really super, as sweet as honey, prepared by humankind. I want that connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I don't want people to be the intermediary between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and me. That's what she is saying. So if you say taraf means mazon, and the advantage of saying that is it avoids the whole masculine, feminine, gender confusion, and therefore that's why we're going to the second pshat, I think that's, that's pretty straightforward, then you interpret the whole story midrashically, Bafiha becomes her ma'amar, what she said, because of course what she said comes from her mouth, and she's saying something about the alizayat, the alizayat is food which is in her mouth, in other words, she's talking about it. But by the way, there is a little twist to this tale. Why does she go back to the table? If she prefers natural occurring food from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, even bitter, to what Noah can provide for her, why does she go back to the table? And the answer is, and this is where I said it's a midrash, it's not to be taken literally, but that's... You can, uh, that's too much of a cop-out. You can't just say it's a midrash, it's not being literally, just push it on one side. There is some reality to it as well. If she is saying that she'd rather have bitter olive leaves directly from Hashem rather than nice sweet food from Noah, and yet she goes back to the teva, what does that tell you about the vegetation? But there isn't very much of it. It tells you, and it tells Noah that there's still not enough vegetation for her to manage outside the Teva. So it's a really very precise gauge of what's going on. Noah learns that there is a, um, an amount of vegetation growing, but not very much. And that's why he has to wait longer. That's the message of the owner, according to the second Peshat, that she's really keen to have naturally occurring Ali uh, Zayat directly from Hashem, but she still comes back to the table because there's not enough yet. So that brings us to Pasuk Yudbet. And there it says, Vayiyachel od shivat yamim, achirim. So we're not sure what Vayiyachel means. It looks like Vayachel, but it's got an extra Yud. So we won't translate it, but it's something about seven more days. Vayshalach et ha He sent the Yona, Velo yasfa shuv elav od. And she did not return to him again anymore. By the way, what day did she find a place to rest on? Shabbos. How do we know it was on Shabbos? Because my favorite Zemir says, Yona Matza Vomanoach. The dove found rest on it on the day of Shabbat. That's why we sing Yona Matza. Um, and if there's any day, any Shabbat to sing it, it was yesterday because it refers to May Noach. So I hope you did. And if you didn't, you could sing it next week because it's great. Okay. 
And that's not in Rashi, by the way. That was a complete aberration from the Rashi share, but it's nice. Okay. <laughs> Says Rashi, Vayiyachel. Hu loshen vayachel. It is vayachel, as we had in Pasuk Yud. Eila shezeh loshen vayifal, vezeh loshen vayitpael. It's a different binyan. Don't notice, by the way, that Onkelos translates the two in exactly the same way. In Pasuk Yud, he translates Vayachel by Vaorich. And in Pasuk Yud Bet, he translates Vayachel by Vaorich. Same word. Which fits. Rashi says they are equivalent. They are two different binyanim, which mean the same thing. Um, and he goes on to say, Vayachel, Vayimtan, Sorry, Vayimatan. And then Vayachel, Vayitmatan. All four words mean he waited. Two different Shorashim uh, to mean he waited, and two different grammatical forms. According to Rashi, the first is to use our names for the Binyanim, Kal, and the second one is Hitpael. I think it's Kal. He waited, and what's Hitpael mean? How do you translate a Hitpael? Reflexive. Now, the trouble is, we call it reflexive, but it doesn't make sense to have he waited himself. It doesn't have a reflexive understanding. This is one of many, many examples of where the reflexive, the hitpael, is used just to mean a sort of intensive. Um, it's a really bit like appeal. Um, so it means he waited more. That's, that's what it means. Interestingly, Ibn Ezra who's really the home address for grammatical observations, he says V'yachel is nifal. It's passive. Uh, again, that doesn't mean he was weighted. It's another, it, mean, it comes to exactly the same meaning, it's just that he disagrees with the Rashi about the finer points of diktuk, uh, of which binyan it is. But the point Rashi's making is V'yachel is the same as V'yachel, uh, it's just a different binyan, According to Rashi, it's a hitpalel. By the way, if it's a hitpalel, what, what, what letters should we expect to see? A tough. But because it's a yud, because it's a, it's a pay yud word, at least the way Rashi understands it, the tough has disappeared. And he says that very clearly, by the way, when he gives the examples at the end, when he says in Vayamatan, sorry, I, keep, I must be honest, I'm not sure what the, the, the nikud should be, so I'm giving you lots of different versions every time I read it. Uh, and then in the Hitpa'el form, it's Vayitmatan, there the tough is there, and you can see clearly it's not in our case, and that's because it's a Pe'yud word. And apparently in a Pe'yud word, according to Rashi, the Hitpa'el, the tough disappears, and you just end up with an extra Yud. Okay, so Rashi wants you to know what the word means. You might be surprised. You might not know what the word means. And especially when we have an interesting um, observation here, it means exactly the same as what we had in Yud, and yet it's a different word. And therefore Rashi has to explain that it's really the same word. And that's what he says at the beginning, that hu loshen vayachel. It's the same as vayachel, or it's an expression of the same idea. And that's Pasuk Yud Bet. And then we go into Pasuk Yud Gimel. Vayehi ba'achat v'sheish ma'od shana berishon be'echad lachodesh, and it was in the six hundred and first year, in the first, which means the first month, on the first of the month, choruvu hamayim me'al ha'aretz, the waters dried up from the earth. Vayasar noach et michsei ha'teva, 
and Noah removed the roof or the covering of the Teva, Vayar, and he saw, which by the way implies that before he had no way of seeing outside. Vihine, and behold, Charvu Pene Ha'adama, the face of the earth had, or the, of the ground had dried up. So, we're almost at the end. I, I think I'm going to read Pasuk Yudalad as well, because it's really part of the same story, and you'll see it's relevant for the Rashi. Pasuk Yudalad says, Ubechodesh Hasheni, and in the second month, Beshiva Ve'esrim Yom, on the 27th day, Lachodesh of the month, Yavsha Ha'aretz, the earth had dried up. So we've got two dates here. In Yud Gimel, it's the first of the first month, and in Yudalad, it's the 27th of the second month. And there's a pause between that, between the two. On the first of the first month, he removes the roof. And on the 27th of the, sever, of the second month, then it's finally over. And what happens next is they leave the Teva. But let's look at Rashi on Yud Gimel. Right. Yes. Just really quickly, just going back to talking about like Noah watching or saying, um, how do you know that the, you could see the, top of the tops of the mountains then? Um, I don't. Uh, I think, think it could well be that he didn't know, but we do. This is written by, by, by the narrator. Okay? Uh, look, I, you, you raised an interesting question, and I, 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 I'm not quite sure of the position. I think there's more than one opinion about whether could Noah could see what was going outside. I think, given your question and what we've seen so far, it makes more sense to say he couldn't see what was going on outside. Okay, Rashi says on the word Birishon, L'Rebeliezer hu Tishri, or L'Rebeliezer hu Nisan. And that is the final comment of Rashi on the whole question of the chronology of the flood that we discussed at length last week. And we talked about the fact that at the very beginning, when the flood started in the second month, he quoted Rabbi Yezo, who said this is Macheshvan, and he quoted uh, Rabbi Yeshua, who said it would have been Iyar, because they have different views about when the flood started uh, and about other things that happened in Tishri and Nisan, as we read in the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah. Um, and then I pointed out that as Rashi goes through the various stages of the flood, he drops Rabbi Yeshua and he only quotes Rabbi Yezah, but here at the end he brings Rabbi Yeshua back. And I don't think he ever said, he ever meant completely disregard Rabbi Yeshua. I suggested last week, and I, I don't know if it's such a good suggestion, but it was my suggestion, that he didn't quote both timelines at each stage because it would just be too complicated. And really you don't need to, because if he quotes one, you can like work it out for the other just by adding six months. But here at the summation, he mentions both to, to conclude the story. So Rabbi Yezer, who said the thing started in Malcheshvan, says it ended in, or rather at this point was Tishri, and Rabbi Yeshua, who counts everything from Nisan, says um, we're now the first month is Nisan. By the way, it's easier to say the first month is Nisan because we have a mitzvah, a mitzvah daraita that we count our months from Nisan. It needs some explanation to say how Rabbi Yezer can count months from Tishri how you can have something called Rishon, the first month, and he says that's Tishri, because I say we have a mitzvah medoraita, that Nisan is the first month, but Rabbi Leza has his reasons, and it certainly fits in with his global picture of everything that happens in Tishri. And that's the end of, no, it's not the end of that Rashi, and then Rashi says on the word, Charvu hamayim me'al ha'aret, says Rashi, Na'aseh kemintit shekaramu paneha shalmala, it became like a mud, and the, the top face of the earth was hardened. Now, my question is, um, why does Rashi say it became mud and just the top bit was hardened? 
Why doesn't he say, Chorvu hamayim me'al ha'aretz, means it got completely dried up. Any ideas? Okay, this one's an easy one, and it's why uh, we read Yudalad. Because in Yudalad, it says at the end of Yudalad, six weeks later, sorry, seven, seven weeks later, Yavsha ha'aretz. There it says the earth dried up. And here it says, Chorvu hamayim me'al ha'aretz. And the fact there's two stages must mean, must mean, they're two different things. So if you look, let's jump ahead to the end of your Dalad, Yavsha, the end of your Dalad, Nase grid kahilchata. It became dry land as it should. So the second time, Yavsha haaretz, that's fully dry land. So the earlier time, Chorvu Hamayim Me'al Ha'aretz must mean something not quite fully dry land. So there's two things. Number one, it's not quite fully dry. And number two, it's Me'al Ha'aretz. From, or literally from on top of the earth. So Rashi says, back in Yud Gimel, what does Chorvu mean? Na'aseh Kamintit. It became like mud. So it wasn't completely dry. It was a bit sort of gooey. The top level dried out a bit. The top level began to get literally crusty. But, uh, so me'al ha'aretz is from on top of the earth. That's where it got dry, but not the full thing. The full totality of dryness must be the second time it says something dried up, and that's the end of your dalad. So in your gimel, we're not quite fully dry. What does it mean we're not quite fully dry? It means it was muddy, and the top bit of the earth was getting crusty. But in Yudalat, when it says Yavsha Ha'aretz, that meant, Na'aseh Grid, it became dry land, Kehilchata, like it should do. So let's carry on with Yudalat. And Rashi on the words, Beshiva Esrim on the 27th. And then Rashi reminds you, just in case you forgot, the Yeridatan Bechodesh Hasheni, Beshiva Asar Bechodesh. The coming of the rain, the first falling of the rain, was on the 17th of the second month. So just to make it easier, we'll stick with Rabbi Yezer. The second month is Macheshvan. Um, so the water started in Macheshvan, which, by the way, is the rainy season after all. That's why we're saying Mashiach right now, in Techeshvan. And in Israel, they're going to say Talamata very soon. We wait a couple of months later. Um, so the water started on the 17th of Macheshvan, and the flood was finally over. The land was finally dried up on the 27th of Macheshvan, one year later. So Rashi says, So he, having the, he doesn't quote, he doesn't repeat what the Torah says here about the end date, but he does tell you the beginning date in order for you to work out what was the duration from the beginning to the end. Now, we're not talking the beginning and end of the rain. That was only 40 days. But the beginning to the end of the whole process was a year. That's a Jewish year, a lunar year, plus 10 more days. When we say 10, actually it's 11 because you always count the first day. Now, in, in Jewish counting, we always count day one. As, sorry, the first day is day one. That's why a Brit is on the eighth day, but it's a week after the baby's born because you count the first day, the day it's born is day one, and then a week later is day eight. Has that ever confused you? Okay, well, that's the answer. So you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so that's why Rashi here, from the 17th to the 27th is how many days? According to this style of counting? 11. 11. 
And that's why Rashi says, Elo echad asar yamim, shahachama yatera al halavana. This refers to the 11 days that the sun, i.e. the solar year, exceeds the lunar year. Now, it's very interesting because we're sort of traditionally um, enculturated, if that's a word, that we have the Jewish calendar. And the solar calendar, you know, from January to December, is not our calendar. Uh, We have to use it because it's for convenience, because we all know what we're talking about. But really, it's nothing to do with us. That's not strictly true. Because there are many instances, many references to the fact that the year in totality, in completion, is 365 and a quarter days. And for instance, that's why our leap years are to make sure that the lunar year comes into sync with the solar year. Not just Pesach must come in spring, but the Abachagim also are determined by where they come in the agricultural season. And the agricultural season is turned by the sun, not by the moon. So Pesach must come in spring, Northern Hemisphere spring, and Shavuot must come in as the summer sort of wears on, and Sukkot must come at the end of the summer, and that's determined not by the lunar calendar, but by the solar calendar. And therefore we have to fit in the lunar calendar into the solar calendar, and we do that by intercalating a month seven times in 19 years to bring the two into sync. And in that respect, it's the solar calendar which is driving the process, and the lunar calendar has to fit in. Here you have an example of Rashi pointing out that if you want to know what is a complete year, it is not 12 lunar months. It's 365 days. And this is not the only example of this. There are many, many examples of the idea of 365 or 365 and a quarter being a total year. And now he says, and I'll conclude, Shemishpat, I mean, I'll conclude this Rashi, Shemishpat dor hamabol shana tamima haya. The judgment of the generation of the flood was one complete year. What is a complete year? It's a solar year. Now, by the way, it's also an average lunar year. Over 19 years, if you take all the lunar years, some 12 months, some 13 months, and you average them out, it will be 365 and a quarter days. That's why the the calendar comes into sync to within a day anyway, every 19 years. So you could, without all this fuss about a solar year, you could just say it's an average lunar year. But I don't think you really should. I think what he means is a complete year is defined as a solar year. And the Jewish year averages out to be the same as a complete year. But a complete year is a solar year. And that was the mishpat, was the judgment of the Dor Hamabul, that they were going to be wiped out over the process of a year, a Shana Tamima, and that's 365 days. And therefore, if it started on Jewish date, um, 17th of Marcheshvan, it must finish 365 days later, which is um, 27th of Marcheshvan. Um, so, by the way, sorry, I missed out some of the numbers. A standard Jewish year, non-leap year, is 354 days. Now, it can actually be one day more, it can be one day less, because the month of Cheshvan and Kislev can either be 29 or 30 days, so there's a bit of flexibility there. But the average, if you like, the standard non-leap year is 354 days. The standard solar year is 365 days. That's why Rashi referred to the 11-day difference. Why does Rashi have to say that? Now, I'm not entirely sure, and I really couldn't find a clear answer to that question. And I think it's just, if the Torah is giving you dates, there must be a reason why it's giving you dates. After all, we could have learned the whole story of the flood without any date. 
it rained, it rained for a long time. I mean, you could tell it rained for, 100, for 40 days, and then there was 150 days before the tops of the mountains were appeared, and there were seven days for the dove, and seven days for the dove. You could have all that. Why do we need to be told the beginning date and the end date? So I think Rashi could be answering that question by saying you can see from the beginning date and the end date that the duration was one Shana Tamima, i.e. a solar year, i.e. 365 days. And I think we will stop there. That takes us to the end of Shlishi, which is a good place to stop. So Emir Tashem will be back again in two weeks' time. Thank you very much. Thank you.